When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We are back from the break, and I want to open with this, is how did y'all two meet? You want to tell the story? That's an interesting question. I guess I can. We have a mutual friend who, uh, whom I won't name, but um, <laughs> that, I mean, I don't want to put them on the spot, no, so I'm not going to name them yet. <laughs> But, that was a guffaw of relief. But she she had been uh, coming to Tupelo. We'd been hanging out for a little while, and she lived in Tupelo, bro. I had never. Did was she living in Tupelo mm-hmm. at the yeah. time? Okay. Like, uh, the, like, yeah. So she's in Tupelo at the time. I met her through a mutual uh, a friend of ours, and um, I thought she was going to school with your wife. No. No, I met her through. I just assumed that a drummer that uh, that I know in Tupelo, and I don't know. I still to this day don't know why. But she said, "You you you need to meet my friend Alec. You two would really get along." And I later find out from you that it had something to do with astrology. I thought she told you the same thing. She said something I she said to the do with thing to zodiac signs. All right, the but way I, the way I remember the story is when Danny was hanging out with her, she said, "Man, you you really need to meet my friend Alec. He's all into astrology. You something would love him. like that." And Danny's thinking, "No, I don't need to meet that guy." <laughs> and the next time I see Jay, because again, she lived in. I guess she was living in. I get. I get. I guess I just said her name, but it's, it's sorry, okay. Jenny. We're, we're, no, no, we're talking about knows Jay. We're talking no, about no, you. no. Yeah, Henry Hobos. Henry Hobos. Jenny and I were in the Henry Hobos forever. I dro- drove to Tupelo every weekend for band practice. Then we we were in Whitehawk. Yeah. I she's thought a, I thought Columbus she was going legend. to school with your wife, and that's how she knew you. Mm-hmm. And she's saying mm-hmm. you should meet Alec. He's into astrology, nope. and you were saying no. And then she tells me you should meet Danny. He's into astrology. I'm like no. <laughs> what I don't remember is if that's the case. Oh, I remember. You were Freemason. And that's why I was like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll talk to this that's hippie. Right. That's what we bonded over was Freemasonry, but not astrology. Our first thought- conversation was about Freemasonry and Gnosticism. <laughs> that's right. So right from the get-go, it was like, what were the, what were the real questions? Yeah. He, called, he called me the first time we spoke. He called my phone. I was in Tom Bigby State Park smoking a joint parked by the, by the, uh, by the waterway. And Waiting that's, for what, a that's what we talked about. He 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 was interested in being a Freemason, and um, I kind of rode Danny's coattails through Freemasonry. He did not you know, ride my coattails. Danny had just come into Freemasonry, 
and, no and, 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 and then as as a door as a door would open and you would walk and in, walk into a new portico, I, I you know kind of you know, yeah. When need be, I would propose you in in, in, in Freemasonry. Once you go through the first three degrees, then there are other uh, avenues within Freemasonry that open up to you. Many of those avenues are by invitation only. So. I was, so I I was intending to use Danny to become a Freemason in, in the bluntest of senses, but we ended up becoming good friends because the 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 funny thing is, Jenny could only articulate what she saw as a con- connection between us, the the same way you said demonology earlier, or the same way like people use the word occultism or something. It's like what is the word where I can describe these dudes are into some weird stuff. Like yeah. there's the veil, and I don't, and I guess his head's on the other side because I just see like his butt wiggling. Like I don't know what's going on, <laughs> on the other, other, you know. So I guess da- da- astrology's the go-to. Da- Danny and I have been. There, if you ever seen Ghostbusters two, like is uh, they both have buildings, right? The, yeah. The Ghostbusters one has a building too, but just like imagine the scene of being on t- being up north in a city, you know. And at the top of the building, wraparound windows, occult rituals, and a lightning storm happening around you. Mm. Danny knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a very specific Rosicrucian experience we had. The, the Rosicrucians in America meet in this hotel that has 16 floors to it so itself is a tower but if you're familiar with tarot symbology the 16th key the 16th major arcana is called the tower this and this was a tower with and we're on the 16th floor and it sways when you're up there you can feel it i've never been to this building and not left and didn't have vertigo for the next week that's probably partially due to the hospitality suites that they hold that are absolutely packed with the best booze you could imagine but uh but yeah it it happens in a very magical environment and to become a rosicrucian you have to already be a freemason that's and that's one of the connections that that Alec and I have had have all right so just to, how did you get in like we got quite let's go here ask for what you need let's let's go here first i want i want to break off into something easier cuz that, that was a lot is <laughs> just the process, <laughs> and we'll break it down. But I, like music, man, like uh, you're a musician. I'm a musician, and so um, I wanted to ask you about like. Uh, uh, I know you started out. You and your brother uh, were tripping to uh, for art, and so, man, at that young age, uh, what were you listening to? Does it go back to Spaceman 3 and all that? No, I didn't find Spaceman 3 until I was uh, in my late teens. I guess I was 18 or 19 Okay. before I found Spaceman 3. No, back then, it would have been uh, Naked City, Mr. Bungle, Praxis. Mm. Um, Naked City is a project by this, uh, this downtown scene in New York this guy named John Zorn who is uh, he's kind of like the 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 reincarnation of Peter Brotzman Peter Brotzman he had this project called Machine Gun that was pretty 
abrasive jazz. Like if if jazz was metal before metal existed, you know that's what they were doing. And John Zorn was continuing that stuff. Mister Bungle was kind of a a genre blending metal funk. Easy listening, surf music, everything you can imagine, they would mm-hmm. pack into one album. And they were fronted by Mike Patton, who eventually went on to sing for Faith No More. Mm-hmm. Um, and Praxis, uh, that was a project f- produced by Bill Laswell, who he got uh, the organ player and bass player from Parliament Funkadelic, and Bernie Worrell, and Bootsy Collins, and he had Buckethead on guitar, and Brian Brain Mantilla on drums, who eventually went on to play for Primus after um, Herb left. Uh, Incredible band. So yeah, we were into really intense uh, jazz, metal-influenced kind of stuff back uh... then. You know, like as far as metal back in high school, it would have been System of a Down, which I really wouldn't even consider to be kind of metal. But that was as about I could I could do eighties Metallica, and one thing I get older and as I hang out with people who have an eclectic taste in music and can accurately define it and why they like it, is that's one thing I've learned about metal is it's very jazz influenced. Yeah. Yeah. Billy Cobham, who played drums for the Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, incredible jazz drummer. But he, when he was asked in an interview, you know, was, what would you compare your, what you guys were doing in the 70s, what would you compare that to? And he said, oh, there's nothing else other than death metal mm-hmm. like what we were doing. And he's right. I mean, he had a double foot pedal going on. Mm-hmm. It was back in 74. You know. Right on. And so, like, just from your influences and tripping <laughs> and to today is uh, man just about your projects and what you're involved in now uh, to talk about the sound and did that early influence have an impact yeah so I, when I went to college I first majored in music I was a uh, majored in guitar classical guitar and was in the jazz band um, but the problem is I have I have numerical dyslexia so i can't read music because reading music music plays on the same side of your brain that you do math with so i can play by ear i can play anything by ear but i can't read music and the thing about playing in these bands when you uh, in college is you audition they you audition for them so I, i auditioned and got in and then my first day in music theory class my teacher he he said, you can't, what do you mean you can't read music? He said, how did you get in here if you can't read music? I said, I auditioned for the band and I got in. Yeah. And he said, well, you can't, you can't not be able to read music and major in music. Yeah. And it, it, it was problematic. They tried to pull some strings and they got me. I, I was the manager of the marching ensemble and still was able to play with the jazz band. Um, you know, eventually it became clear that I would need to change my major. And I eventually changed it to psychology because I thought psychology still somewhat resembled what was happening with Jung and Freud and Rank and Spielrein. But it's moved on. it does not remotely resemble that anymore. So that my bubble in that domain got popped pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, and, um, 
my brother, he he is uh, he's a musician also. Um, what type of instruments do y'all play? Untrained. Uh, he's untrained, and but incredible on bass guitar keys. I personally play. Um, I play in anything. I mean, the only things I can't play are wind instruments. Mm-hmm. I have COPD, so I have trouble with breath, trumpets, saxophone. You know, but anything with strings or keys or percussion. You know, I play tabla. Um, I play some cello, bass, piano, guitar. Uh, pretty much anything within the range of percussion or strings. Yeah. And like when you first picked up music, man, like what was like was it mom and pop's record? Like was it being in church and hearing music, or like what what got you into music? No, to be honest, um, I was raised in uh, my my grandfather was a southern gospel singer heavily influenced by hank senior sounded exactly like hank senior to be honest he and george jones he could mimic these these men in a un it was unreal how much he could sound like them um but he emulated those types of musicians so that's what i was raised around um yeah, I didn't have much. It wasn't until uh, I went to my parents were divorced, and I went to stay with my father. And I guess it was 1994, and he was playing MTV. And that was the first time I had ever been exposed to MTV. And uh, I think the video I saw was come out and play by The Offspring. As embarrassing as that is, but it it absolutely that kind of a Turkish Egyptian riff. Oh, yeah. Something about that riff awakened something in me that I didn't know existed. And from then on, I was a rock fanatic. You got to put that in your heart song. song. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm a fan of Weezer. I don't know if that hurts to say, but it doesn't Oh, man. I bought the first the album offspring when, when it came the, out. The Offspring is, shouldn't be an embarrassing thing uh, at all. Uh, I'm a fan of The Offspring. Uh one of their best songs. I mean, they have a lot of great songs, but uh, hit that. I don't know that song. Really? The the that only song, albums that, I know that, are that Smash, was, Ignition. That was and... talking about the relationship problems of the dating culture in California, and it was a punk song talking about that. <laughs> and it, it goes back and forth talking about how the guy thinks he's just hitting it with the girls, he's just scoring all the time, and then it goes to the viewpoint of the baby mama. And it's it's a perfect punk song, and it's right attacking culture in the right way. He's a smart guy, you know. He's a doctor of, I think, biology. He's a. He's, they had a lot of great cultural Dex, punk Dexter songs. Holland is his Did name. you ever spend a lot of time with the Offspring? Oh, well, I was around it, so all all my friends, yeah, yeah Offspring. What, what's what's the one where the kids on the swing? Oh, I mean, I might have even owned it too for a minute, just like the I owned, never on the mind. Swing. The kid's on the swing. It's an illustration of a kid. Yeah, he's on the swing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. So, yeah. So, yo. Punkarama, Kerplunk, Dookie, Rage Against the Machine. Sure. Um, These weren't bands I liked, even though, of course, like I owned a lot of these albums. But my musical thing, like everyone around me, I'm a couple years younger than you. Mm -hmm. So, it's like still same era. And I'm also like hanging out with you know, other dudes are probably like a year or two, three older than me. So this is the music that 
is speaking to people like holding the zeitgeist. I mean, come on. Offspring, they're in idle hands. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Aren't they the band in idle hands? I think that is Come on, baby. So, um, my musical awakening, like jazz is kind of there on the fringes. You know, um, there's there's actually like this Nels Klein album where ever like about the angel of death, like all all eight songs about death. So, but I, I'm gonna say as sad as it is, Pink Floyd is probably where I was like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm around all this punk which and record? metal stuff. That's a very transformative. Which was, record was it, was it? Dark Side of the Moon. That's a transformative album. It was actually no Pink Floyd album. It was the movie Pink Floyd: The Wall. Oh, so yeah. I see the wall. And then listen to the album, and then you got it. Listen. Were you, you doing know, acid? I mean, when, no. As when a, I was as watching a the child, wall, I was doing acid. As a child, I am thinking this is the substitute for that, or okay. or, or 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 just um, all all art is doing that though. Music too, you know. Thinking like, I'm imagining. How is this coming into existence? What are these people doing? Mm-hmm, Sex mm-hmm. is in there too. Occultism is in there too. As mm-hmm. far as like my youthful speculation is going, um, I didn't but, find but, the wall before I found acid. I tell you what. What what was the breakthrough for me though? My musical um, induction. <coughs> the Velvet Underground kept coming up when I was reading about stuff. Not just music. Maybe like Andy Warhol movies and stuff, Velvet Underground kept coming up. And then there was a girl I really, really liked. And she and I asked her, you know, what are your favorite bands? And she, she said Dinosaur Jr. and the Pixies. So I'd already picked up a Dinosaur Jr. record. Which one? Green Mind. That's a good so one. So still my favorite. But anyway, I go to FYE and I get Surfer Rosa. R.I.P. <laughs> Surfer Rosa by the Pixies and the Velvet Underground Nico purchase. Hell yeah, both that's a good purchase. Both of them have white on the covers, um, and I went home and put those on my dad's um, stereo because this was back when, like, you had a setup. You had a setup. Yeah. It was like multiple pieces of equipment and the speakers and the subwoofer, and I had to clean the house. I guess my dad was at work. I don't know where my sister was at, at school. I, I, yeah, yeah, she would have been at school because I'm like, you know, I'm a high school dropout with two degrees. You know, I got my MFA. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I guess my dad was at work and my sister was at school. So I put on, I, I can't remember if it was Velvet Underground Nico or Surfer Rosa first, but probably Velvet Underground Nico first. And just hearing like the opening Celeste riff on Sunday morning mm-hmm. blew my mind. And then to get all the way through European Sun and then put on Pixie Surfer Rosa, which I did re-listen to somewhat recently after a long time. And the production on that, you can really hear the room. So it kind of... It it, go, it it can pair well with Velvet Underground mm-hmm. Nico. Mm-hmm. So anyway, after that, it was like... I finally got the punk thing that that I did not so much like with with offspring. I mean, it's it just did, it just did. Now, granted, the offspring aren't we're in punk. Tw- that's like we're third in, generation. We're in, right. We're in twenty twenty one. So now I can look at the nineties and be like, wow, there's actually some really cool stuff happening. But to grow up in it or to grow up like right under it, like see other mm-hmm. people, you know, experiencing it, it's like <coughs> I'm just not you know vibing. Now fast forward. From 94 to 95, my dad drove down from Pennsylvania 
Come on down. To pick me up and drive me back from Mississippi to spend some time with him. And y'all listen so, to Offspring the whole time. No. So I do. That would be such a fucking nightmare, wouldn't it? <laughs> the get you know the nightmare the the nightmare started <laughs> the year before with this Offspring video. Uh oh. The next year he's picking me up to take me to his house and. I've been turned on to the Velvet Underground by this point. I've told you this story. You know oh, the story. Man. So I've the got story. this tape. This tape I've recorded of that's like OG Pope. The Velvet Underground cover, yeah, like Pro-Town. back. In, oh, yeah, it was the, but it was the greatest hits, twentieth century greatest. Hits. I know, I know the CD. That's you're talking what it about. was. I yeah. burned, you know, I just re- burned it. Mm-hmm. I recorded it right. on this tape. You know, mm-hmm. my fucking dad let me play this thing. Side to side to side to side on this 24-hour drive from Tupelo, Mississippi to That's awesome. Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. We we must have played it a hundred times. And he didn't complain once. once so That's his tape, right? Shout out to my dad. No, it was my tape. He, he I, made, I made, made the tape. Oh. But a year later, you know, it started with The Offspring. Yeah. found its way into the same way, like he was saying, you start running into Velvet Underground references. They're everywhere once you start getting into that territory. Well, yeah, like, okay, the movie The Hunger. Maybe that's what it was. The movie The Hunger with David oh. Bowie and Bauhaus. Um, I've never in the, seen oh, It's in the opening scene. Like, their band, like, they're kind of proto-goth. And they had broken up, but the song is in the movie, so they're like miming the movie in the opening <clears throat> and of course if you read about Bauhaus you're gonna read about David Bowie you're gonna read about Velvet Underground uh, I'm sure like if it had been Duran Duran or something I don't know it'd be like or Ig- Iggy Pop no but I mean the Stooges were cool but nobody was as cool as the Velvet Underground I mean I can't remember who the quote's from but they said you know only what did, it was like they said only so many people bought that record but everybody Brian that bought it that. started an album was that Brian Eno? Yeah. yeah but yeah you got like Folks like the Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, coming out around the same time period, and just like something's in the air. And the Dead were called the Warlocks, just, just like, like the, the Velvet Underground. When it on was opposite Lou Reed, sides. John Cale, and Angus Young, Angus McLean, Angus McLean, Angus Young, Angus McLean, Angus McLean, who his uh, humming in the night skull. I can't remember the name of the track, but. Probably the only track that actually sounds like what a high, high dose of mushroom sounds like. And McLeese is in occultism too, right? Yes, he was. A, he there. was a thelemite. He was a follower of Aleister Crowley, and eventually got tuberculosis or something, and yeah. went off and died in seclusion. But is that what yeah. Mr. Crowley's about? Well, Ozzy? You, you, yeah, Aleister you, Crowley. Yeah, yeah, you you heard it here, folks. Because of Ozzy, everyone <laughs> says Crowley, Crowley. But, it, it, but it's Crowley. So, Mr. so just Crowley. so if you're ever concerned with you know doing your Aleister Crowley research, if the person is saying Crowley, they're an Aussie fan. If they're saying they're, they're Crowley, pr- probably they're Robert Anton Wilson, not a historian, and you're not getting yeah. <laughs> good info. Yeah, obviously not a Thelemite, but at the same time, Crowley, as Crowley. as somebody who is you know treaded in the waters, it's like man. You know, watching Ancient Aliens or something, and they're saying Crowley, <laughs> Crowley. or watching. You know, if you're a Freemason, you're gonna you're gonna get that thirty third degree, and Alistair Crowley is gonna come he out. Gives it to you He's himself. gonna tell you it was the devil the whole time. You have to kiss his butthole. That's right. Lord mercy. And then, let's get into that. Uh, I, I didn't want to pull it off music, but I wanted to go into Freemasonry. Why did you want to be a part of it? Freemasonry? Yes. 
Well, that ties back to the first question you asked me about psychedelics. And my, so we had gotten into territory that was no longer artistic and was verging on spiritual crises and we had no frame of reference for it. And we acquired a language to kind of discuss it through Eastern mysticism, but that stuff was so outside of our, we couldn't access that. We're living in Myrtle, Mississippi, you know, (laughs) but I did know that Freemasonry was, Freemasonry has always been a very powerful thing in the South, largely because of the Scottish Rite. Uh, the Scottish Rite was founded in the South and Charleston, and it still exists in the South and Virginia, uh, which I guess it's arguable how Southern Virginia is. But, uh, but regardless, Freemasonry in the South is a very strong, powerful thing. And I have family members who were Freemasons. And back, I guess, when I was about... Uh, 10 or 11 years old, I'd spent spent the night with a friend of mine whose grandfather was a Freemason, and on his bookshelf was a copy of Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike, who wrote the, kind of, wrote the lectures for the Scottish Rite, organized the degrees for the Scottish Rite, but I got a, you know, got my hands, he's got several copies up there. Got, got my hands on a copy Sorry, of no. Morals and Dogma and, and didn't, I'm it in my hand right now. didn't know what it was about, <laughs> but I knew that whatever the fuck that book was about, I wanted to be a part of it and to know more about it. So ever since that night, Masonry was kind of in the back of my mind as this wisdom thing this thing that was more intelligent than intelligence i really didn't know what to think about it but uh there's a lot of mysticism around freemasonry oh a lot and like the number one thing i want to if if we can dispel it right here is like you could go pick that up at a public library Mm -hmm. so this is not like and you can you can know what it's about those are the lectures so in the scottish rite those are the lectures. After, when you go through a Masonic ritual, you're put through a degree, a ritual. And then afterwards, you're given a lecture that kind of explains the philosophy behind that ritual you just experienced. What that book is, is a collection of those lectures that Albert Pike wrote for individual Masons to read or to have read to them following those actual degrees. So yeah. while you might not get the degrees yourself you could read those lectures and get the philosophical underpinnings of them wow none of that's secret now the earliest versions of those books would say things like you know to be returned to the scottish rite upon death of the recipient or yeah that's why i just showed while you were talking oh okay the people at home got to hear but i was distracted yeah so that it's a that's the book that I didn't read the book, obviously. You see it's fucking thick A book. book you have to be initiated to read? But when I looked through that as a kid, it left a mark on me. So when I got older and started having these psychedelic experiences that were becoming spiritual, becoming you know something more than simply artistic excursions, I can't tell you why the first thing that came to my mind was Freemasonry, but it was. And I wanted to 
I want, I realized I needed to get my feet on the ground. My, the way I saw it was my head was completely in the clouds, but I had no foundation for in anything to, for what I was doing and Freemasonry. That's, I mean, it turned out to be that it turned out to be very much a path. You can put your feet on. It's solid. It's a foundation. It's about building, not destructing. You know, when you get into the deeper, higher degrees, there is a destruction of the temple, but there's a rebuilding of the temple. This has to do with this idea in alchemy, uh, Solway et Coagula. Take apart and put it back together so again. alchemy is real. Alchemy is definitely real. No, the transmutation of base metals into gold is not alchemy. So I'm if that's talking, what no, you're I'm asking. Ta- I'm, I'm talking about real alchemy. And alchemy is absolutely real. Well, listeners, like, define alchemy, because we're talking about the same thing, but I want to... Alchemy is a, it's a long subject, but spiritual alchemy is one thing. Alchemy, as a term, started in Egypt as a practice that was it's about animating statues when i say animating i don't mean making them move i mean anima as in soul and souling a statue so in ancient egypt these the, there was this tradition where priests had this specific knowledge where they knew that if i you if we do it on a specific day at a specific time we use certain metals we make these metals a certain color, and this—that's the important part. They're making the metals a certain color. The belief is that certain deities, Egyptian deities, are connected with these colors, herbs, stones. So the ability to make a statue made out of metal a certain color is heavily guarded in ancient Egypt because this is the knowledge needed to ensoul this statue with the energy of the deity that it's made to represent so that you're not just worshipping a piece of metal you're worshipping that deity can we step off in demonology just for a second not to get lost in the weeds in it sure deity I would actually say demonic demon deity no deity god but like these are not there's only one true god but these are gods lesser gods you know gods with little g's I I would say demons so demon, the word demon comes from the word daemon, d daemon. A daemon is an angel or an angel or a demon. Fallen angel. When when Christianity talks about evil demons, it qualifies it evil demons. Even an angel is a demon. That's the thing. A demon is a messenger, an intelligence. Angels are that. So are demons. So when Christianity talks about quote-unquote demons, it qualifies it. It says evil demons, evil demons. That's not to say that there aren't positive demons, which is what we would call angels. So when the pagan, quote-unquote pagan, it's an umbrella term, but when the Greek pagans had this hierarchy of deities, Sure. There were gods with one god at the top. They still had one god at the top. Sure. But where we they had gods intermediary in between, we would call those angels. Or further down the line, saints. Right, could but Protestants... But could we go to a biblical reference for a second? <laughs> Do y'all remember the passage in Acts when uh, Paul goes to Mars Hill? Paul gives to, his lecture at temple, Ares. To the temple Ares, of the unknown God. It's Mount God. Ares, and that's where he converts Dionysius the Areopagite. So Who, are we firing on the same cylinder? So, like, these are deities. These would actually be alchemy 
on Mars Hill right there, right? Air, Mount Aries. Mount Aries. Is the name of it. That's it's You're saying Mars, but it's actually Mount Aries. Yeah. Mars like, being the planet that rules Aries. And have, that's yeah. the translation. They would say Mars read. Hill. Right. Mars Hill is Mount Aries. Yeah. Same thing. That's where Paul Paul gave his lecture, his sermon that converted Dionysius the Areopagite. He's who continues his tradition of. But was he was carried present there. Al, absolutely, alchemy goes back to Zosimos of Panopolis. Some of those gods represented as as Paul opened his sermon, as he went to the temple of the unknown god and proclaimed it as Jesus Christ. That all those other deities were in fact deities, maybe not demons. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying those deities aren't real, right? When so, well, this think is a great about it, think about it, to make. Think about it this way: when Christ went to Hades, right? Went to Hades. That's in our tradition. We say that in the creed. Three days. When he went to Hades upon his resurrection, he went to Hades. Think about what we're saying. He went to hell. Greek. Hades is a Greek hell. It's it's the hell in a Greek cosmos. Mm -hmm. So for Christ to go to Hades, he's saying the Greek cosmo conception is real. He's saying, I'm overturning it. Because I'm saying that all of these people down here who are saints, I'm going to let them into my father's house, Olympus, Mount Olympus, which previous to that only gods were privy to. He's saying, but now, after this, I'm going to overturn that Greek cosmo conception and say that from henceforth, my father's house will have many mansions that no longer will you have to go to Hades to an underworld. But you will be the son of God, just like I am, and Saint, get to go Saint-hood. get to go Saint-hood. to Olymp- Mount Olympus. Right. What 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 are so? I think that cleans the air for like people who don't understand Catholics and Orthodox right. praying to a saint. They don't understand they're, the they're power. intermediaries. And, and, and again, there, there again, intercessors. Think, think right. of it. Think of it as you're asking your grandma or your your friend who's like who you know has been <laughs> lifted. Right, and say like, brother, please pray for me. Grandma, please pray for me. I'm taking yeah. this test. Or, you're closer to God than I am right now. I know, please, I know Protestants have a hard me. time with saints, with the Virgin Mary, because we think of it as a distinctly like ethnic Catholic thing, when in actuality, it's only Christmas time when Mary gets acknowledged. And it goes back to, to the monarchy thing. We just... We don't have that worldview in America. This idea of of saints is ancient. In ancient Greece, well, they would have called them heroes. These that's are why heroes. We're Christians. That's like the whole point of being a Christian is to aspire to sainthood. Right. You know, we call some saints righteous, but clearly no one's righteous but Christ. But that is the aim. Right. Do you remember where you were? Yeah. Um, so. You know, Danny's talking about heroes, you know, and ascending to this ideal. And in Christianity, what are, what are we trying to do? We are trying to emulate Christ. We're yes. trying to be righteous. Yes. So in Orthodoxy, there's theosis, which you're not going to like this word. It's very scary. Deification. Oh my God. The- theosis is deification, but that's totally theologically sound because you you are aspiring to sainthood. That's what a Christian is trying 
to do. That's right. So what what is that? To and that's be, something that I always struggle with. Well, no, I think some like, Baptists use like, that language too. It's like, it comes down to a simpler state of mind, though. It's uh, imitation of God, deification. Uh, it don't that don't offend me at all. It's to be like Christ. Well, I think it's a great process it's, problem. It's the emulation. Well, be be like, like Christ, but call then like it deification <laughs> might be a bit far. But I don't think no. Let's call it for what it is. Is you're yeah. trying to be like you're your participating God. in Christhood. You're participating yeah. in Godhood. Well, yeah. It's just like what does the word sin mean? You know, missing the mark. That's right. So it's like you it's know you term. know what the right thing to do is. I know what I need to do, but I'm gonna make that same mistake again. Mm. I'm gonna consciously miss the mark. So if I overcome that. I'm getting that much closer to aspiring to theosis, to deification, mm. oneness of God, what was lost with the fall. So Christ comes back and he conquers death with death. Mm. And he rises in power. Free will, though, just like Adam had free, free will, we, we're going through our own... Well, it's it's the hero's journey. I think it's so cool that the the Greek, they would call call them heroes in the, the Hellenistic world. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at Joseph Campbell's hero myth, when you're talking about literature and story, that's the premise of a fantasy. Um, there's there's a hero. There. Well, but fan but fan, fantasies are are just a uh, um, this this ripple or this reflection or this projection of ideals and archetypes. Anyway, that's right. Only um, you have more freedom to talk about. We, we say we say stuff like, "Oh, well, you you could never put that in a fictional story. Nobody would believe that ever happened when it's a true story." Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you already put that fantastic. So so when when you're living in the Christian world, like Danny's saying, Christianity is coming. Christ is entering the world in the Hellenistic world, and we are still living in that post-Hellenistic Roman world now. Where it's this weird Greek mythology, MCU inverted like Christian thing. Is, yeah. Yes. Um, like so, we're living in that language, and that's what's and, crazy. And, and Christ is coming into this matrix with that that language, because like Daniel was saying again, like how we're perceiving what is even going on is through that language. Well, and you you'll have in, in modern times, you know, talking about. Christ as being incarnated by a virgin, being a God that is in ma- that is man, being some an entity that died and rose again. All of these things that are clearly impossible. Um, the modern, I think, the modern attempt is to say, well, that's that doesn't make any sense. You know, those things are impossible. And from a Protestant perspective you're asked to accept these things on faith you know just accept it not question it in orthodoxy they address them as mysteries Mm. so it's almost like they're saying that it it can't be explained logically but you just you kind of have to accept it but there is no logical anything come and see i want you it's uh, just like psychedelic experience or going through freemasonic initiation but 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 we could sit and tell you everything about initiation but unless you experience it you don't know but the real real orthodoxy come and see i feel like is to someone who feels that way what they're really struggling with is they're struggling with well but why would god do those things 
why would God incarnate of a virgin and die and rise it again? It leads to why? awful questions. Why to do those things? The know? problem of pain. Well, I feel like, but but for the person asking those questions, all they're able to express is their own limitations of understanding. And their Because angst. what I feel like is what we're talking about is a deity that could do these things. So we're saying that we believe in a deity that were it his prerogative, he could incarnate of a virgin. He could be God and man. He could die and rise again. If we can admit that all of these things are possible by a God that can do anything, why would we question that they happened? If we can admit that God is all-powerful and can do these things, could do them, could were it his prerogative, we might not understand why he would choose to do them. We could admit our own human ignorance. But if we could admit that he's an all-powerful God and were it his prerogative to be born of a virgin, that's what he would do, how could we doubt that that is what he did? That's the logic that I found myself crushed up against. Mm. It doesn't matter if it actually happened. It doesn't matter if... God incarnated of a virgin. The deity we're talking about is able to do such were it his prerogative. How it did you, happen. How can you doubt that it did happen then if you can say it's possible? You've, you've, you, you thrust yourself into this thought loop that has no end when... And you close your eyes and you'll spin off into space. You certainly will, yeah. Because there's no footing there. We're, we're, we're being asked to stand so, on water. Back to Freemasonry, it offered grounding for you. It did. Well, Freemasonry is filling the void that Protestantism creates. I wasn't an Orthodox, I wasn't an Orthodox Christian when I became a Freemason. By the time I became an Orthodox Christian, Freemasonry appeared incredibly superlative. Uh, not superlative. Uh, um, uh, what's the word I want? Um, well, superfluous. It, it, it appeared superfluous. It, 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 for me, so in the earliest days, Freemasonry was limited to Christians. But by the time James Anderson entered with his constitutions, this notion of universality came about. And Freemasonry was extended. Membership was extended to Jews, Islamic folks, Buddhists. Now, that's a beautiful thing. That these men of all these different religions can sit side by side and worship God together. But in the ritual, they say that Freemasonry is the religion wherein men can best work and agree. So it's defining itself as a religion. Masons will argue until they're blue in the face, say Masonry is not a religion. We're, this is oh, not I've a religion. In the ritual, that. it says it's the religion wherein men can best work and agree. It, that's how it defines itself. So fuck all that, those other people that want to say it's not. It is. In the earliest days, it was actually called the Noahite religion. Does it have that, anything to do with the Templars? Not really, but there was that's an attempt to myth. connect it Well, there's later Masonic on. There are, well, right. well, beyond Masonry, how many Templars <laughs> there are? There are plenty well, of Masonic Real Templar quick, not, not to plug it, but the I had the charter for the original Templar order. AlecHawkins.com <laughs> slash Templar join $5,000 and then it's only 1500 a year after that. Give your OnlyFans address if you're going to go that far. Good plug. I don't, want, I don't want this guy to have to start adding stuff out because I almost said somebody's <clears throat> name and I don't need to say it. Good plugs. Good plugs. 
<laughs> I didn't mean to derail you. I don't even remember what I was saying, so you completely derailed me. It's, but it's okay. Uh, so we, we were... Uh, well, we, you're, we're you're talking, talking about, about it, how it, it Freemasons is, will say it's not a religion. That's right. So but, they'll say it's not a religion, even though it, it defines itself as a religion. Now, here's what I ran into when I became an Orthodox Christian, is that religion is that thing which is remarkable. So remarkable that you would remark about it, that you would set it apart and say, this was so remarkable, we should make a religion about it. So by setting up masonry as the religion wherein men can best work and best agree, it's saying, let's set it up as the lowest common denominator of religions, which literally undoes religion, because religion is the remarkable. Is that which is so remarkable, you would set it apart and make remarks about it. So to set up a religion that is the lowest common denominator of religion, allows you to it undoes religion. And masonry creates for itself this glass ceiling that then is the floor for every legitimate religion, like orthodoxy. That's what I ran into. I'm still a Freemason, you know, but I feel like largely it's superfluous. Once you start participating in what orthodoxy offers, largely because masonry is based around that same rite of passage that Van Gennett discovered when he wrote his book on the rites of passage. He didn't invent them. He discovered a very stable pattern that happens universally. What we're doing in orthodoxy is a stable rite of passage that masonry is attempting to reproduce or recover. Right, because where's Freemasonry coming from? What is it coming out of, historically and geographically? I mean, it's coming out of a post-Protestant environment post-protestant so it's not only that much further from orthodoxy after the schism of 1054 but it's that much further after the protestants broke right. away from catholicism i mean and we before freemasonry there was the rosicrucian movement there were these manifestos published in the like 1604 or something like that um that were essentially Lutheran, Lutheran documents, Protestant documents, mm. you know, but, um, and what were the Lutherans? They were a Protestant sect that retained the Eucharist, retained the liturgy. They, the, they had a liturgical form, but had no Pope. So it was very much That's an right. attempt to recover what was lost. After Martin Luther. Right. What was the, lost the with orthodoxy. Yeah. What was, when, when orthodoxy became a question mark, I mean, most academia knows this is not the case, but you start getting within the individual histories of Protestant sects, and Orthodoxy is treated as a like a subdivision of Catholicism that's attempting to go back and recover something that was lost. That's not at all what it is. It's, it's always existed. There was never a time that there wasn't an Orthodox church somewhere in the world, you know, it's, right. it's absurd. Yeah, everybody else, and I, I don't think any Protestant pastor or believer would disagree with me. The attempt is to reclaim what was lost. That's right. right. That's why we don't like the Catholic Church. They innovated and they created this institution. Right. That's, Especially that's, since Vatican that's, II. That's not Christianity. So anybody who's a Christian, you know, 
Protestant non-denominational is seeking to do what they should be doing. Right. Orthodoxy never had to do that. Mm-hmm. And the attempt to go back to and say, let's do something strictly biblical. Well, biblical requires tradition to, to interpret it. There's so much in there that is... And culture. Yeah, it's not interpretable within our culture, but within the culture within which it was written and accepted as a biblical document, That's as right. a as a spiritual document. That's right. You know, it has to be understood within its context. Right. And you cannot divorce it from no. the tradition that gave birth to it. And that is the orthodox. What do you think Christians were doing before the Bible was written? Before they decided what does on, orthodox even mean? I was just look at means, the meaning of it. It means right worship. It, it, it literally means this means, is what it means. Like, right I'm worship. unorthodox because I'm left-handed. Well, you know, like just look, just look at it. So the uh, word heresy itself comes from the word a word that means schools. Heresies, heresies, I think is the word, but it means schools of interpretation. Orthodoxy is saying there are no schools of interpretation. This is the school of interpretation. Mm. If you have a question, you make recourse to the church fathers. You know, you you can make recourse to the Bible. I mean, the Bible is the word of God. But tradition in orthodoxy, tradition trumps interpretation. Right. And you can't you can't recreate the tradition by looking at the Bible only. That's right. Because when Paul's writing his epistles, why is he going to mention stuff that they already know? Well, he's so, writing to so churches us, doing So us 2,000 years later can try to figure it out. That's right. Well, I mean, yeah, just to go back to <laughs> That's you. not in the Bible. Of course it's not in the Bible. Why, why, are, why are they even talking about the, 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 the he's liturgy? He's writing here. to churches performing liturgies already. Right. The, the, right. the New Testament church is doing the divine yeah, I mean, liturgy. Okay. But he's not telling you how to do the divine liturgy in the epistle. Book of Ephesians. I mean, it's to the church of Ephesians. That's right. It's Ephesia. What are they doing? They're not reading the Bible. Right. The Bible is that letter. He's writing a (laughs) letter. Yeah. He's confirming faith. That's right. Or he's getting on to them. So you have to have holy tradition. He's admonishing them. And that's that's what orthodoxy is. The Bible does not interpret the Bible. So you have the Bible is part of the tradition. That's right. Yeah. It's like, and then that's like exactly said, like you said in Church of Christ. Every Sunday they do the Eucharist, but they don't do the liturgy. In Orthodox thinking, there is no, okay. Here's a good example in Catholicism. There is a specific moment at which the Eucharist, yes, thank you, at which the Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ in the ritual in the Mass. Mm-hmm. There's this moment. This is the moment it's happened. In Orthodoxy, that thinking is anathema because. The thought is already, well, this entire process is that. Even after they've consumed it, the liturgy continues. Even after they've taken it, it's still the process of this is the presence of Christ in his church. Christ was, is, and ever shall be. That's right. And they talk about, in Orthodoxy, they talk about um, symbola, means symbol. And it comes from this Neoplatonic idea of synthemata and symbola, which is a a token, and it's almost like a fractal representation of this thing in miniature form. So they're literally saying that the Eucharist is a symbol, a symbola of Christ. It's not; it doesn't represent Christ. This is Christ here and now, mm. and it's not divorced from our participation in that liturgical cycle. We have to be there. 
We have to be there anchoring ourselves in the thing, in the ceremony with our prostrations. We have to be there saying the things we're supposed to say. That is Christ, his marriage with his church. You can't just drink wine and eat a cracker. That's the thinking. I'm not trying to attack people who are Protestants and worship that way. I'm just saying orthodoxy doesn't understand that and neither do I. I don't know if either one of y'all could answer this. This is just something that I was thinking about like when we were going through the the Orthodox service. Is why do you believe that taste is the last sense that can be experienced after being confirmed? It's not that it, the, the the belief is that it should be the last thing. It's simply that until you've been baptized, you can't partake of the Eucharist. And that's Which the last sense, thing. the last sense that would be occupied. You know, like people drop dead. And this is recorded in the Bible. I think it's in the Acts. It might be in Romans. I can't. But like Paul instructs the church that if you are in living in sin, to not take of the... He, he told me about that. To not, and like, I, didn't, I had like, never heard of that he, until I would be, got involved in it. Well, it's, it's a very of, sacred thing. And right. If I could go to the Episcopal Church and take open communion... You can't do that in the Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. and and that's a that's offensive or whatever. But just the the notion of think of it think of it this way. Back, back backing up a little bit to what you were just initially saying about the taste. Mm. When you take the body and blood of Christ to your lips, Christ is going into you. So it's and more you than just taste it's. Consume is consumption. When, when when you when you're putting when you're putting that chalice to your lips, Christ is going into you, and you, as well as everyone else in that congregation, are going into the chalice. Okay. It's a, it's also a sacrifice of the worshiper. I think is what you're saying, right? Because that's one thing that Schmemann says also is that the sacrifice isn't being made Christ's body. But we are sacrificed with him in that participation, right? We're definitely we're definitely going into you know that droplet into the sea. Mm. So reducing this to eating a cracker and some grape juice, I, I understand why the the only way you could even justify this saying like, oh, this is a memorial. This is this is Thanksgiving. Which it is Thanksgiving. I mean, it, that's sure. what Eucharist means. I, I I definitely have heard some people say like like Eucharist is mm-hmm. like that's not that's that's not that's a bad word. We don't like that word. But I mean, but like we talked about this do in remembrance is of me. When you say remembrance, that's a loaded term. Now in this in modern America, you say let's this do in remembrance of me. It sounds like a memorial, but in ancient Greece, remembrance the actual word is anamnesis, anamnesis. It's a Platonic term that means to remember your divine origin. Amnesia. Anamnesis. <laughs> Amnesia is tied to it because right. it's, rem- it's memory. But he's saying, when Plato is saying anamnesis, he's talking about remember the fact that you descend from the one. You descend from the monad and you will return to him. Remembering your divine source. So when Christ right. says, this do in remembrance of me, this do anamnesis, he's saying... Not just remembrance of me, and remembrance of your own divine source. It's it's heavily loaded. I'm, I'm not so much on Hebrew, but I mean, you're making a lot of 
you're going back to the Greek with these terms. When we're talking about Greek, you have to talk, I mean, a and like, Christian, you have thing, to talk about Greek. That's what the New Testament's and, written. And, and that's the thing, yeah, exactly. And so I know, I'm, the Hebrew stuff, I know the Hebrew alphabet, I've studied a, a good I, bit I'm, of Hebrew. I still work on it. It's, it's a lot harder for me than Greek was. Greek came a lot easier. But, like, when you say platonic and, like, yes, because the English language is very weak when it comes to terms such as love. Mm-hmm. The word love will freak somebody out. Like That's if I, a good example. If I told you that I loved you, I mean it phileo, as a brotherly love. Right. Not romantically. Not fellatio, N- yeah. Alec. <laughs> yeah. Or, or not even like... You said you loved me, bro! <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But, but that just goes to show how weak our language is. That's right. It, it, agape. We say agape. Is yeah, a Greek agape term, for, or, you but know, it, however. It, but it has to do with a, a godly a, love. A charitable charitable godly love that has nothing to do with it. it's pronounced agape agape it's agape wide open it's a wide open love yeah <laughs> what a great we're so holy yes very holy uh but just to go back to mars hill to where we got off talking about this it was it was good to get off in the weeds on that that was good to break those <laughs> things down but we're talking about alchemy freemasonry and how uh, these metals can hold the deity. So in, in ancient Egypt, there was this belief that you could tincture metals. That was the word they would use. Tincture them to make them certain colors because each color corresponded to a certain deity. And we still have this to this day in systems of ceremonial magic where colors correspond to certain energies. So if, if a ceremonial magician wants to work with the energies of Mars, which is war and aggression, red. they would use red. Or if they want to work with Venus, which is love and passion, they go with green. Mm. But they also have corresponding metals in alchemy. So Venus is green. It's also copper. Copper turns what color? Green. Green. R- Mars is, like I said, red. Mm. Its metal is iron. Iron turns what color when it oxidizes? When it rusts. Red. Yeah. You know, so it, it, all of these things are deeply embedded in the way these, the world is perceived. It's a, it's a, it's a perception of the world that is almost like a hall of mirrors, so that it's all one thing reflected back from itself on these multiple channels and multiple planes. Um, the the Hermetic worldview, the Neoplatonic worldview, they have this idea of a what they call the great chain of being, which is like a pyramid with the monad at the top, and at each level you have different levels of entities with man at the bottom, and man as the entity at the bottom, we have this position of being a at the bottom, at the lowest of the low, but B, we're also, we have to be here because as Yamblica says in his De Mysterious, we bring the, all of that monad energy here, make it manifest here. If man didn't exist, it wouldn't manifest yeah. here. We, we are, are the hands. way it we manifests. Yeah. yeah. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about this being a theophany. You know, that's why the Orthodox pray for the dead. That's right. It doesn't go anywhere. Kings Peter Kingsley talks about how the dead live more than we do through us. He's not Orthodox, but 
I think Orthodox would. Well, and Orthodoxy lines up with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know, some some of the stuff we're, we're touching on now, we we hit a lot in the previous podcast. Um, the um, I, I'll tell I'll tell a quick story. Three Magi, they're they're like Zoroastrian astrologers, essentially Persian. So yeah. they're the re- reading the stars. Mm-hmm. Astrology them? and Christianity, like just hear, hear me out here. Don't mix, right? Like you, you know, just hear me out. Like people would be offended right now if I was saying like Orthodox Church promotes astrology, mm-hmm. but the Magi. That that's how they came to Christ. That's how they they, they followed the star, mm-hmm. the star, mm-hmm. using astrology, that's using right. New Age things, things that we would call satanic. Now, post Christ, we call all these things like, why are you doing this? Sup- superfluous, unnecessary. It's same, it's the same um, um, frustrations with Freemasonry. It's like, why would you even be doing this? So the my story is the Magi come to Christ. They follow the star to Christ. And we know from the Bible, so I'll only use the Bible to make this um, point. We know they went one way to Christ, right? But they did not go back the same way. Right. And and, and in, in Orthodox tradition, the Bible has its literal interpretation, its allegorical interpretation, its symbolic interpretation. But one of those interpretations is they weren't just going back because they didn't want to tell King Herod anything about the Messiah once they found him. But they also didn't go back the same way they came because we didn't, we we, we don't need that anymore. Mm-hmm. The Orthodox Christian doesn't have to read the stars. That doesn't mean I don't believe in astrology. No, that doesn't so, believe. That doesn't mean yeah. that I I don't believe in demons, you know. It. Mm-hmm. The point. The point is. No, it, here's it, a, it, here's a good way to look at it. Yeah, t- in, t- in, t- in ancient Greece, t- as a you were required by the state to make offerings at the temple of Zeus of Jupiter, because Zeus is the ruling god and his representative what you do. was the emperor. Mm-hmm. So everyone had to make offers at the temple, the offerings at the temple of Zeus. Even though Zeus represents the same thing that the Father represents in Christianity, what the Christian message is saying is that there is no need to bother with inter- intermediaries all the time. It's not saying they're useless because we still have saints, we still have angels. your grandma, right? But it's saying that your your pastor with Christ, <laughs> he is our intercessor. With Christ, you can go zero to a hundred. That's right. You can go straight instantly to the because of eminence. So the Greek notion of deities was transcendence. They're they're they transcend us. By the time we get to Yamblichus, he starts kind of incorporating that the deities are here. That they don't have one locale. They're everywhere, all the time, at the same time. But but at the same time, that idea was already happening in Christianity with Christ as being imminent all the time. Deity isn't transcendent. The Jewish notion of deity is, for example, deity's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Man's down here. We have intermediaries like angels, the angel of God. That's so often referenced in the Old Testament. And a really bad thing to run into one in the right. Old Testament. But God's there and man's here. And there's a, an abyss between. Christ 
is that intermediary. You know, and I, I, my, me personally, I didn't understand Christianity because I was so focused on the one God, the mm-hmm. monad. But here's the problem: if we're going to say God is transcendent, and this this corresponds to what's called apophatic mysticism, anything you could say about God is wrong because it's a limitation. Anything you could say about him, the transcendent deity, would be like a cage you'd wrap around him. Right. None of those things can be right because he transcends being. So, so wise tales like any time you go to uh, explain God to a friend, it's like you almost commit heresy. That's right. So because you're you're putting God in your mind. So how do and we he's transcended? About how it. do we make <laughs> this leap from an apophatic God about which nothing is true because he transcends being? How do we make but a he leap? Is truth. How do we make a leap? To a deity that is all-knowing, all-being. Here's the thing. John Scotus Eugenia, famous theologian, he said, God doesn't know anything. Somebody told him, he said, God's omniscient, God's all-knowing. He said, God doesn't know anything. He said agnostic. He said, God's one. To have knowledge, there must be two. How do you have knowledge if you're in a true state of oneness? You don't have a second thing to know. That's a no, so he's saying, whatever God, God isn't stupid. He's saying whatever knowledge is, it's the province of man. And God has nothing to do with knowledge because he transcends duality. How can you know something in a true state of oneness? So how do we make that leap from a transcendent deity to a deity that can know, that can do? Philosophically, that demands at least two parties. Now, we know God's a trinity. As Orthodox Christians, I know God is a trini- mm-hmm. trinity. I don't understand that. But I do understand that at least two parties are demanded for God to be imminent and for God to know and for God to do because the transcendent God is in a state of monism, true oneness, where knowledge is doesn't even make sense. Not mm. part of that domain. So at least two parties are demanded, a father and his son. Mm. Now, the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, I don't understand. I'm not at that level of understanding. I mean, Nobody not, understands women. But that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, again, back to my point with the, the, the Magi and how like we can look at the world. Without Christ, man was still able to look at the world and figure out a lot of stuff. Christ comes and com- completes it. Hmm. So that's, that's how we have the Magi fi- finding Christ. I because, feel like... Because yeah, I think it, what you're saying is that until Christ, it was a successive happening of, of different groups of men striving, reaching up and grasping and saying, I will do anything I can to unite with deity. And then what Christ is is a final descent and saying yes to that. Let's say yes to that and mm. unite. Yes, I'm. I'm saying that, and but I'm also saying like even now, like with our struggles to understand what is the Trinity, we can look at real life, the Matrix, you know, Planet Earth, and we can see the ideal. You know, we can't. I guess we can't see it, but we can see it in our minds, or we can see it in moments. But the ideal of the father, husband, the man. Mm-hmm. So he he's he's man, he's father and husband. 
So so he's one person, but we he, can project that. But on he, him. right, so and trying to understand like what is going on here and how, like right now it's three of us talking, or or even if it's two people, you would have you know Danny Allen and the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, we we, the, we we can see these the lover, weird the loved and the love between them. Yeah, we, it, the energy, the ripple, the. Yeah, uh, I, it's the same way when you look look at the the biblical text and you try to figure like okay o- over the course of history the, these books add up you know there's no conspiracy there's no way that these um these motifs and repetitions and mirroring and types happen all through the scripture you know Ezekiel mm-hmm. being a type of Christ um, mm. Melchizedek. Um, Noah's Ark, oh, and, I, and and how the Vir- the Virgin Mary is also mm-hmm. our Ark. When I read the Greg, church is Gregory of Nyssa, his book The Life of Moses, he talks about Christ putting about Moses putting the 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 wood into the water to make it sweet. He says that is the cross. Mm-hmm. He right. says when he sends Joshua into the Promised Land, Joshua comes back with these grapes suspended on a log. He's saying that log is the cross. Those grapes are the blood. What right. about the cross? You know, right. All the, 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 tr- the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the, the, the tree of Calvary, you know, the cross at Golgotha. Your love of fantasy, my love of, of fiction, of story, storytelling, all, all this is this metaphysical, mm. a, a mirroring or a, a manifestation of the actual reality that we can't see or comprehend. You know, you, know, you can mm-hmm. you can take drugs to remove the veil. My you favorite. can participate in worship to to step into the sacred space. I do think that is why stories are are so important because it kind of taps into the same thing. You know, we, you're never going to see the ideal in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we admire people that we can project the ideal on and we admire people who who do in moments kind of become heroes and and you know, you know, the writer who's possessed, the musician who's possessed, you know, the actor who channels, you know, but something we're, else. But we're really getting into forms. I mean, when they manifest that, it's because they're manifesting an archetype. And that gets back into the same fear of like is this is this a demon? Or, or is this the Holy Spirit? Yeah, you know? absolutely. So, like, for for example, you know, monastics, you know, if they're praying in their cell and all of a sudden the Virgin Mary appears before them, you hear stories about, like, oh, well, they spit at him and they're like, get out of here, you know. Cause, cause, because it's if it is a demon, you know. It's say, almost like that if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Right, 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 yeah. The the idea is he's he's praying and, and the devil's trying to if they can to, to be use killed, it's not r- r- religious pride to distract him from praying because he thinks he's seeing the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but 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 it is stuff, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If if you want the true apostolic first century Christian faith that's been unbroken for millennia, you are going to have that trepidation, and you're probably going to have people around you being like. That that look, they're wearing them black robes. Mm-hmm. That that looks awful, you know, mm-hmm. satanic. What a lot of people don't realize is, you know, Levian Satanism is taking its cues from like you know Catholicism right. and you know Orthodoxy and you know liturgical worship. But anyway, Much because of what we think Satanism about is Christianity upside down. Yeah, it comes from that '80s 
eighties like uh, satanic panic horror, right? That, uh, that was basically Catholicism inverted. Yeah, and that storytelling again. It's almost like as we've gotten more agnostic, and even like the Catholics, you know, pre or post Vatican II world. Mm-hmm. It is funny how Vatican II happens in the early sixties. Mm-hmm. Sixty-two, I think. Yeah, and then you know by seventy-two. You're getting the novels, The Exorcist, and yeah. um, Rosemary's Babies already happened. Amityville yeah. and The Shining are about to happen. Speaking of so, the it, so we become horror enth- enthusiasts because you know God is dead. You yeah. know, The Exorcist too. I mean that that opens a whole other can of worms. It was Alec is the one that told me that the author of that novel was head over psychological warfare department for the what? U.S. government. How about that? Yeah. And when you really start looking into the symbols he's operating with, the book that immediately springs to my mind is Carl Jung's Symbols of Transformation. Part of me is heavily heavily suspicious. Right there in the book? Did they put it right there in the book? (laughs) Part of me is heavily suspicious that... That book is a is an attempt to weaponize symbols of transformation. I don't know if you've read the stories about when it appeared in theaters. People had seizures, vomited, oh, yeah. ran out screaming with panic attacks. Yeah. Things that didn't, were unprecedented. Oh, there's a lot of power in art. It goes to music. I think there was ha- more happening in the theaters than at home viewings. There yeah, must why have, did that never happen again, though? There, yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it... I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy guy. I'm the furthest from that kind of stuff. But I I wasn't exposed to that. He exposed me to it until I had read Young's mm-hmm. Symbols of Transformation. And everything lines up with this... Uh, I mean, it's an, in, it's an attempt to induce madness in young girls. I'm convinced. I'm not an attempt, joking. Yeah, just like Elvis and the Beatles and, you know, all that yep. is... In, Inducing madness in young young girls, um, and also to talk about how life is like this weird projection or manifestation of the metaphysical. When we think about story structure, th- th- you you mentioned Exorcist two, okay? Exorcist two is a movie that people hate, but the interesting thing about Exorcist two is Richard Burton is a British actor who really wanted to make a movie version of Equus. Is, is that Peter Schaefer? I don't I, know, I think but that's Equus the is, same territory. Equus is a play by Peter Schaefer. It, it's uh, uh, Daniel Radcliffe from Harry Potter. That's the first thing he does after Harry Potter is he does Equus, because Equus is famous for the, the full frontal nudity. But the premise of Equus is this young boy goes from being a zealous Christian to basically being obsessed with the horse. And the movie's famous because he, f- he fucks the horse. And that's basically so, what Symbols of Transformation is about. So Not about fucking horses. R- Richard Burton makes Exorcist but. 2 on the condition that Warner Brothers will make an Equus movie that, that he can be in. Not as, not as the boy, but as the psychiatrist. Why is that relevant? The Exorcist and, ex- and, and Equus? Mm. Well, in the novel The Exorcist, in the first Exorcist movie... What happens right before Linda Blair? Well, before we even when we meet Linda Blair, when we meet Reagan in the novel and in the movie, she has just ridden a horse 
And she's a horse girl. <laughs> so anyone who's seen the movie is be like, yeah, that's the the very first scene. She's just ridden this horse. So so Sigmund Freud, um, what what's happened? She she's been activated. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Young in symbols of transformation. Young talk. That's Young's break. Well, with, that was brilliant with the right. Freudian school. Go to pop culture just for a second. It's because if you talk to anyone who is twenty seven down to about eighteen. If you want to make pop culture references, a great place to start is Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, I just want people to know, like, icon. maybe they know what Equus is, even if they didn't and know for, what Equus is. And Equus to come after, who was the main guy? Daniel Radcliffe. You would watch well, that Well, that's film. why I did it, because it's, it's famous for that. But boys get werewolves. The, the boy puberty horror stuff is werewolves. Girls, thanks to Pierre Blade, now they get demon possession stuff. Yeah. You know? But but the weird like the manifestation of it is it, it's interesting that you you get her riding the horse and it's the sexual awakening because I don't think anyone's going to tell me that you can't interpret um, the Exorcist as like little girl anxiety you know no, the, the, the danger the dangers of little girl anxiety yeah I um, mean and and what Young is talking about throughout that book is horses as a symbol of libido. Right, and that's what Equus is about. That's why the now he, the boy he gets taken over in that, puberty and Equus. That book is in two phases, two stages. The first stage is him building up this horse stuff. The second stage is him dealing with an actual girl who went psychotic. We're talking about Freud here. Yeah, we're talking no, about, I'm Freud. talking about Young. Young. I mean, Young. We're talking about Young. Yeah. Not 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 a fictional book. We're talking about Young. Young yeah. symbols of transformation. An actual girl. So. I'm convinced that the author of The Exorcist, I mean, he's the head of the Psychological Warfare Department. He would have read Symbols of Transformation. That's the book that was... Any author with his salt. No shit. But, I mean... It's pretty clear right. to me that I mean, what they're talking about. If I was about, William Pierre Blatty, of course I'd be like, we're putting this in the author bio right here. If I was going to weaponize that movie, that, excuse me, that book, it would be The Exorcist. I don't, yeah, I, it's, yeah it's, a, it's a package deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm but, slightly mortified of reading the novel. But but to get back to the whole idea of like life, life is the mirror of story. Story isn't the mirror of life. When you read about this thing, Warner Brothers did not realize the hit that they had. You know, they were putting a little bit of money in it, and you you had um, Billy Freakin in it. But you know, there, there's no big names. You know, there's no stars in it. That's mine. You can't have it. So the legend is. Um, the, the official narratives like Warner Brothers did not realize that it, it's a hit but psychologically and yeah. psychically of course it's a hit yeah I didn't even know what The Exorcist was I thought The Exorcist wasn't a priest I thought The Exorcist was some scary girl in a nightgown with like blood on her <laughs> which at a time where I didn't even know what menstruation was yeah. but as far as I knew if I had to go up and get the attic go up in the attic to get something The Exorcist was up there and by The Exorcist I mean you know, yeah, the menstruation. But, but now look, looking back, it's like th- this is some some heavy stuff. And what's more fascinating to me is what if William Pierre Blake isn't doing it on purpose? I, I'm with you though. No, it he's probably, the head of the psychological it probably is on purpose. There is no it's, not it's, on it's, purpose. It's more insane. You know, if someone wants to dim- dismiss and be like, "You're thinking too hard, bro." It's more insane that the Equus stuff. Um, no, that's right. Yeah. If if you think it's insane, a go back and read Symbols of Transformation, and b what's up with the Equus stuff? Well, Fro- Freud and Young have been dismissed um, 
Yeah, from the the only reason <laughs> most people know who they are is to know like they were obsessed with sex. That's right. And they they're, they wanted bizarre, to sleep with their moms. Sex obsessed. Yeah. Don't go don't go down that avenue. Right. Them psychologists. Let's move into occultism and demonology. And so like I come from the standpoint of like I have a lot of friends who are agnostic or uh, atheist. Uh, they will not say uh, that there is a God or a, a belief in God, obviously. It's what their belief represents. And then they'll watch these horror films and be scared to death of a film such as The Exorcist. Possession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Openly acknowledging that if you believe in an evil, you have to believe in a good. Or otherwise, right. or otherwise your worldview doesn't make sense. There has to be balance. Yeah. That's what William Pierre Blatty thought he was doing. I'm going to write this book about evil to, in, in a sense, prove that God exists. Mm-hmm. If I can prove that evil exists, I prove that God exists. And the manifestation, the manifestation of crazy guy, demons or demons or deities, lesser gods, of I've I was exposed to hoodoo. I've, I've I went to Memphis. It was the first time I'd ever went to Memphis. I was seventeen years old. It was a weekend trip, mission trip. We were door knocking for a startup church and I knocked on the door and opened it and it was I saw hoodoo and I'm talking like if you've ever thought about hoodoo think skeleton key that's 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 a Hollywood version of hoodoo we know all about that shit so you would confirm that hoodoo's real oh yeah right well it's like I was, what I was, I was raising saying, saying earlier just because I you know yeah. and so like I was on a mission trip to do good, and I saw the absolute enemy of what I was. Or maybe I not don't the, see maybe it not as the enemy. An, maybe not the enemy. It's just calling on the name of a. Different well, when he was describing alchemy and the, these sculptures, I mean, that's the same as making a, a totem. That's right. Or a fetish, cre- manifesting something. So, in this ancient worldview, you have. They're all concerned, and Jan Blickus talks about this in his De Mysterious, with the animation of statues. Mm-hmm. Animation doesn't mean to make them move. It means to ensoul them. Anima, in the same way that Jan right. used the term anima. To possess, almost. So let's say that I wanted to make a statue to the sun. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be Helios, and I want it to embody the actual spirit of Helios mm-hmm. so that I'm not worshipping a piece of wood. They would do it. Now, of course, this is going to be a modern way of talking about this. In ancient times, it was a little bit different. But there's seven days of the week. Yes. There were seven planets known to the ancients. Each of those planets correspond to one of the days of the week. Sunday is dedicated to the sun. Monday is dedicated to the moon. Wednesday is dedicated to Woden, which is their version of Mercury. Saturday is dedicated to Saturn. So if we wanted to make this statue to the sun, we would do it on Sunday. Then within each day, each hour of the day corresponds to a certain planet. They move in their own certain order. So the first hour of the day, which is the first hour of sunrise, it corresponds to that day. And then there's a certain way the planets move. So there are only... a three or four hours in the day that correspond to the planet you want, right? Mm-hmm. So that's time. We're doing this in time. Now we want to do it in space also. 
this is a, a, a worldview that says that, okay, at the top of this chain, not at the top, but we'll say at the top for this, for this purpose, is the sun. From the sun, the sun manifests in the mineral kingdom as sulfur. It manifests in the gem or crystal kingdom as tiger's eye. It manifests in the plant kingdom as heliotrope or Are these sunflowers. Are in your books? Some of it, yeah, is in the second book. But I so just each, want to reference that just for a second. You did write about these kind yep, of things. Some of this is in my second book, not in my first book. Okay. But these are what in modern magical practice are called correspondences. So if I want to do a ritual for the sun, mm. the sun has correspondences. To it's Sunday. Sunday, um, the metal gold, the number six. Uh, they each mm. have numbers based on this comes from Kabbalah. Now, the numbers are different. In Hellenistic tradition, That's right. we're just—I said—for these purposes, we'll stick to this. So everything in existence, colors, numbers—yes, please—numbers, stones, plants, everything corresponds to a different planet. And if you wanted to do a ritual to participate in one of these planetary energies you would use those correspondences so when we're talking about statues they would do this with statues and so for example when we're talking about woods the the wood that corresponds to the sun is acacia so they would carve it out of acacia wood or ash wood ash also corresponds to the sun then they would leave cavities in it thank you and these cavities would be filled with, they might overlay it with gold leaf because gold is solar. They might fill cavities within it with things like heliotrope or sunflowers. While they're doing it, they might do mantras with vowels. There are seven vowels in the Greek tradition. Each vowel corresponds to a planet. They would intone those vowels while they're doing this. So every single thing that's happening corresponds to the energy they're trying to contain. Mm -hmm. And these energies are also relevant within the Christian tradition. Not only do they correspond to the archangels, because the seven archangels correspond to the seven planets known to the ancients, they also correspond to the ten utterances, creative utterances made by deity. Let there be. Which is the ten utterances correlate to the ten, what's called the Sephiroth on the Tree of Life and Kabbalah. All of these things are like the way Alistair Crowley put it. He said the, the this goes back to Freemasonry. He said each of them are like a filing cabinet and you're filing away in each cabinet. This is the cabinet of the sun. Everything that corresponds to the sun goes in this cabinet. If I want to invoke the sun, I use things in this cabinet. The number six, the color yellow, the metal, the metal gold, the plant heliotrope on and on and on. If we want to talk about Venus, it's yeah, roses, the color green, the metal copper, the number seven. So if He's you want, telling you how to do magic. This is magic. I mean, this is just how the, you like, do magic. And it's also I'm how you... I'm just thinking about how it gets implicated into art and to music and everything. I'm telling we, you. It's, it's just... Well, think, know, think I'm about it. This. You just said art and music. Think about when a director has to choose like what colors are we going to use for this movie? Right. Yellow. Or a musician. Let's say what's, what... 
time signature is this song, this tune going to be in? Is it going to be in 4-4? Four, four? which would be Jupiter? Is it going to be a 5-4, which would be Mars? Is it going to be in 6-8, which would be the Sun? Is it going to be in 7-8, yeah. which would be Venus? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be in 9-8, which would be the Moon? That's why Kenneth Anger understood you know, the, the colors and the, the innovations he made with using music in a movie because he, he was overtly using the filmic process what, for with, occult purposes. Within the music that y'all have within the Orthodox Church... What time signature is it on? It's ancient, so it's based. It's either going to be four four or three four. It wasn't until we. I mean, in in Turkish, ancient Greek, they had more complex time signatures, but they weren't using them in a worshipful setting because it's meant to be immersive and grounding. Mm. The effect of odd time signatures is daunting, circular. Like if, I don't know if you're familiar with like 5-8 or 7-8, how those sound. Mm-hmm. But they don't sound like 4-4. Four, four. They don't sound mm-hmm. psychologically integrating. And the liturgical cycle is very much geared towards psychological integration. They wouldn't have called it that back then, of course. But that's what it does. When we say psyche... Because of modern medicine, we have this tendency to divorce it from spiritual experience. It can't be. Psyche means soul. We talk about psychology, we're talking about soulology. You know, they might be able to talk about it in medical terms, but the minute you get on the mat and start dealing with these states of mind in the situation, it's no longer applicable in a psychological manner you've entered spiritual territory it is soul territory and movies music art respond to the soul that's right yeah yeah we we, in our in our modern world we've desacralized it we've tried to act like there there is a such a thing as uh, what's the word that they like to use for worldly and the Protestant and Protestant circles, cons- it starts with a C. Uh, what's that word? Confection? Oh, I don't know. But anyway, like there is no Confection? world. There isn't. No, that's not the word I want. It's well. One thing that I know is um, we're wrapping this up tonight, and we're not finished. <laughs> So we're going to have to get back together. Yes. I'm absolutely down for that. So there's something coming up at Munson Brothers. Tell us about it. Spooky Christmas. Spooky Christmas. Tales of the Glories. So in modern times, we associate ghost stories and horror stories with Halloween. You know, anything scary is Halloween-oriented. But back in the day, ghost stories were reserved for Christmas time. And Dickens' story is a good example of that. But ghost stories are a Christmas time thing. When we're in the, the winter, not the autumn, but the actual death phase of existence. And when ghosts are a very real concern in the back of our minds because we see that 
the entire world around us decays and if it survives at all it does so as a ghost and uh, that's when that kind of stuff becomes uh, a concern and we're resurrecting that tradition this year on the winter solstice we're going to do a a series of readings at Munson Munson and Brothers that are ghost stories um, but it's a very unique series of ghost stories because it's not just a group of people getting up and reading random stories um, we have this very unique theme that I think is somewhat of an experiment uh, it will be an experiment rather but there's an opening Alec and I kind of came up with this together we had done a reading um, Alec and I appeared in an anthology and we did a, a book signing and a reading for that anthology at Munson and Brothers and we had discussed with something else if we were going to keep this thing going and make this a tradition how could we do something for Christmas and and I, I had had this idea of writing a story about um, a series of people who were guilty of, of certain crimes, unstated crimes. But they're at a, this Christmas party, and each gift, when they open it, while the gift to any casual observer would appear to be just a random proper Christmas gift, to the person opening the present, revealed and exposed their crime in its entirety to them and this evolved into a, um, a group of orphans in an orphanage who were all guilty of patricide so the theme became patricide killing your parents your mother or your father or both your mother and your father and what grew out of this uh, somewhat organically it wasn't really planned but it became this idea of these girl orphans that um, were patricidal and had found themselves in a scenario which is very much a ghost a ghost oriented scenario um, where they're forced to face I don't want to call them their crimes because in some cases they're warranted um, but they're they're past is exposed and through that there's some kind of uh you know i don't want to say they find peace in it or anything like that but uh, i do think that the story the the process as a whole is is cathartic and the beauty of it is i only wrote the opening you know the the setting it up with these orphans in this scenario and finding themselves in this position but what we opened it up to was the idea that each of the orphans in the story when they get to open their present what's in that box could be the start of a story by each individual author and this wasn't just me this was Alec and I you know in tandem over about a week or two that we've kindly found a solidified the idea but so each person telling the story telling their story is going to be one of these orphans opening this wow. package that's going to be about the what exposes their history their crime with this patricide scenario and, and an attempt at catharsis not necessarily redemption but catharsis uh, wow so that's what it's going to be I don't want to give away too much but that is that's crazy man yeah that's 
Really well done. Just, just like everything that I collaborate with at Munson Brothers, bring the kids, but it's going to be heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but I, I love that though, you know, ch- children's lit. Or at least child protagonists. Yeah. But it's real life. Yeah. I think it's going to be an all ages kind of a thing, but it will be tense. I've read a couple of the stories. There will be four stories, and um, each of them are extremely intense and well written. And I'm just... I'm sitting here thinking the the two women who are involved in the project Mm -hmm. are, are the two authors who have not... Um, let's just say I, I think there's some there's some psychological uh, heaviness yeah, going on, yeah. but I don't want to say it. Danny should say it. Just just talk about it again, like the um, how how well for example the story that I wrote essentially. So in the we had I had the opening idea of this these five orphans that are presented with these gifts and then each of the stories be told but it was left open-ended we weren't sure do we resolve it somehow or do we just end it with these stories i had originally intended it to just end with the stories but when alec presented his piece it wasn't a piece he wrote it was a how long previously two or three years two or three years he had written this piece and abandoned it because it didn't make sense is that right it didn't make sense yeah and it 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 fit exactly with this scenario not only that but it also provided the solution with how to end it because there's a figure in in his story this uh this Linda Joe that ends up being, I mean, anybody who's involved with the creative process knows this feeling, but I didn't write that story. I mean, it wrote itself. I was just kind of the guy that sat Talk down about and alchemy. had a few minutes <laughs> and would do it, but it, I didn't write that story. And that's, what's so amazing about the creative process. And, you know, Christ says, when two or more are gathered in my name. I'm not trying to say that every creative process is a religious process, but this process felt cathartic on multiple levels. And in the ancient traditions, catharsis is the first stage. Even in orthodoxy, catharsis is the first stage of initiation. That's baptism. Catharsis is purification. The, the so, two or three gathered in my name, um, that's, that's not for the... Maybe we view it differently. A lot of people view it as uh, there he'll be also, which he states that, but it is for the effect of discipline on a church member. I I, I could see that application, you know, uh, within its own context. That's what it's talking about. But any verse, I I feel like, is a standalone thing. And as a standalone verse, I do feel there's some power to that statement. When two or more are gathered in my name. I mean, his name, he being the Logos, the Word, that is the creative, sure. the creative utterance. So when we're talking about the creative process, I immediately you know, mentally tie it into that verse. 
even though contextually yeah. it's not necessarily symbols, what he's talking right? about. Right, yeah, symbols. symbols. But but I do think the way this this came about with the his story after I read it it was uncanny. Like it belonged in this process. And that's what's so strange about this the creative process is temporal. We do it in time. But the minute we get the artifact, we realize it's outside of time. We start seeing aspects of it that somehow came into being without temporal. Yeah. Where the hands. This was a great example of that. Not only did his story only make sense in this context, but it provided the solution to how to tie it up after all of these things had been presented. Again, I, I mean... I can't give away too much. I, anybody who's listening, I hope this comes out before the 21st, which is when we're going to present these readings. But it, it, please come and see it because it's going to blow your fucking mind the way this has kind of created itself. It's we didn't We didn't do right. this. This did itself. Right. It manifested itself. Absolutely. It's been a creepy creepy process well and also you were mentioned the reading that we did do mm-hmm. that very night was when you introduced yourself to me huh so we wouldn't have done the this tonight and the previous podcast hmm interesting yeah you know, no, so it, you were at our reading at Munson and Brothers they, well he before. was at the show that night the he show. was at the show okay. that night okay Matter of fact, I I actually remember seeing you. Really? Now. All right. Because when he was talking you, about the, you that, you look familiar. Yes, I remember seeing you now. I was probably acting a fool. That guy told him that very same day. Oh, if you're going to be in Columbus, check out that Lazarus guy. Nice. That's crazy. Hell yeah. That's real a real lazy that's, bone. That's real. I let one down. Uh, and so uh, the whole this is manifesting. Mm-hmm. In a sense, and so to walk it out the door. Is uh, we got a lot of work to do. Uh, as a host, I kind of push subjects and move things around. I don't think that we spend enough time uh, with some of them, and we have more to go. Uh, I want you to plug your books and how uh, listeners can find them if they want a copy. And uh, and you I, want I, a copy. And and I want them to know of uh, like. We gonna do this again? We gonna we gonna we gonna keep writing this book, or what's up? Yeah, let's do it again. Let's let's plan a a, a future recording in a week or maybe two weeks, whenever everybody's free. Yeah, and uh, I'm absolutely game. This has been a blast. If, if oh yeah, if anybody wants to find my books, my first book, Alchemically Stoned, is available through Laudable Pursuit, um, which you can find their website. Uh, just Google Laudable Pursuit and Freemasonry. Uh, you should find it, uh, especially if you include the title of the book, Alchemically Stoned. Uh, my second book, the new, my new book, is Angels in Vermilion, uh, The Philosopher's Stone from D to DMT, and that was pr- put out by uh, Tria Prima out of Arizona. So if you Google Tria Prima, it'll come up. And those are also uh, a great bunch of guys. Both of those publishers are, and they have incredible content on their website so that's something you want to check out regardless of uh, purchasing my books right on uh alec any uh any last words let me ask you what was your favorite part about this interview my favorite part about this interview was um 
I don't know when when I kept um, losing my train of thought. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say when I showed my penis. I, I forgot about that. I, I got to do this all the time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh well, preferably. I don't <laughs> it was out the entire time. Yeah, this is the whole. This whole thing has been pretty fun. It's been incredibly fun. No, yeah, no. I've had a blast. Well, guys, uh, till next time, um, and don't miss it at Munson Brothers. That's right, twenty first. Yes, yeah, the winter solstice. Winter it's, solstice. It's Come hear some glorious, creepy. I guarantee, creepy. Well, Christmas ghost stories. Tuesday. The week, the Tuesday before Christmas, the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. It's the shortest day of the year, mm-hmm. and it's six o'clock before we read the stories. What's happening? Saint Catherine, our readers group, which is our choir, will be doing Christmas carols, and they are insane, absolutely impeccable vocal technique. There you go. And it's and it's gonna be, you know, somber and you know, it's it's gonna be scary. It's gonna be yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Good. We're we're we are resurrecting the ancient uh, ghost story tradition for Christmas. Yeah, it is. It's it's high time we bring back some creepy Christian action. I like that. Guys, till next time. Till next time. Danny, Alec, Alan. Pleasure, Al.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.